The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 1. Tonight, we are going to answer uh, the next question in our Curious series. That question is, what does the Bible say about suicide? Uh, The first thing that I want to make clear is this. Um, There is no way that we will be able to say everything that can be said on this subject in one sermon, okay? So if you're tempted to send me an email at the end that says, you know, hey, I wish you really would have said this, it's safe to assume I probably wish that too, um, but I just can't get to everything that could be said about it. Uh, What we are going to do and what I'm endeavoring to do tonight is to lead us on a prayerful and a careful journey uh, through the scriptures, believing that we can find help and hope and healing for those who have struggled with depression and suicidal thoughts or those of you who love folks that are struggling in that way. Um, The short answer to the question that we've asked tonight, the the question at hand, which is, what does the Bible say about suicide? The short answer is, not as much as we would like, uh, to be honest. Uh, The Bible mentions six specific people who committed suicide. Those are Abimelech in Judges 9, Saul and his armor bearer in 1 Samuel 31, Ahithophel in 2 Samuel 17, Zimri in 1 Kings 16, and of course, Judas, the betrayer, in Matthew 27. Five of these men were noted for their wickedness. The exception is Saul's armor bearer. There's nothing mentioned really about his character. Now, the fact that the Bible doesn't spell out for us in plain language all that we would like to know about suicide doesn't mean that it is silent on the issue. There are many principles that should guide our thinking and our approach when it comes to this difficult uh, and sometimes tragic subject. Uh, What we can't do as God's people is sit idly by or ignore the fact that, for example, uh, three times more people in Ohio per year die of suicide than of homicide. Um... The number one cause for death in females, I believe it's ages um, 15 to 19 at this point, has just recently clicked to suicide. It's second or third cause of death for children ages 11 to 15. Um, It's it's an issue. It's a major issue. Uh, It's a blight um, upon our culture and our society. There's a a lot of lies that uh, people are believing. There's a lot of people struggling with this, a lot of people struggling in silence. Um, because of stigma, and because oftentimes, because this can be a difficult and uncomfortable subject, you know, and this is not probably a sermon that's going to want to make everyone dance around the sanctuary with a praise banner, um, a lot of times it just won't get touched um, from the pulpits of many churches, but um, I believe this is a church that not just cares about, you know, coming and gathering with God's people so that somebody can preach them a sermon that makes them happy. I believe this is a group of people that really cares about the mission God has given us to love him and to love people and to make disciples. And so if we're going to love people in the culture and in the time that God has placed us, we have to understand the struggles that we're dealing with, um, and we have to bring the gospel to bear on those. And so uh, both inside and outside of the church, suicide and suicidal thoughts 
are, are a serious issue, and um, I believe the Bible has hope and help for us, and so that's what we're going to do today, all right? Amen. Appreciate you um, going on this journey with me. Uh, we have to know how to think and speak with wisdom and care when it comes to this topic. Okay, so uh, I'm hoping you're in 1 Kings 19, and uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 18, okay? Uh, we're going to see Elijah here, and uh, he's having a rough time. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger, a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Okay, so Elijah just got done, 1 Kings 18, uh, the challenge on Mount Carmel, slayed all the prophets of Baal. Jezebel's not happy, and she's essentially saying, um, I'm going to do to you what you did to them. Okay, so that's where we're at. Uh, he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Son of of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all of the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Praise God for the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, um, as you can see, we find Elijah <laughs> in a rough spot. I'm going to come back to uh, verse 4 and just kind of work through this. With you, I believe that there's some incredibly instructive things in this passage of Scripture in the way that we see that God deals with Elijah in this difficult time. Uh, I think it'll be instructive for us, and we can, we can really learn some things um, 
about how to understand this, this difficult subject. So, first of all, verse 4, um, we see he says, uh, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. I think it's interesting and something that is instructive for us that even in this incredible despair, despair so I mean, Elijah's really like an animal going out a day into the wilderness, obviously didn't take supplies. He, he was going out there in hopes to die. This is a downcast man. This is a man that is struggling. This is a man that is incredibly broken and has little to no hope for the future. Even in that place of incredible darkness and despair, loneliness as he believes he's the only one left standing for the Lord, even in that incredibly downcast state, Elijah asked God to end his life instead of taking it himself. Now why? Uh, I believe that Elijah knew the Lord very well, and he knew that what Job of old had said was right, that it is God who gives life and who takes it away. Uh, We see looking at this that a part of this downcast um, kind of countenance that Elijah was in had some to do with believing lies about himself. Um, he, he's saying things like, God, it's enough. Take, take me. Please take my life. Uh, the, the world doesn't need me. I'm, I'm no better than my father. So he's, he's believing these things about himself that are bringing him to this place of, of hopelessness and feelings of uselessness and as if um, God can no longer use him. And even in that place, however, it doesn't really seem as if the thought even crosses his mind to take his own life. But he does request of the Lord. You, you see where he's at. He's done. Um, he's not happy about being here, and, and he would rather retire permanently. Um, I think also we must acknowledge uh, the same thing that Elijah is here, um, the same thing that the psalmist in Psalm 31 says, and that's that uh, he tells the Lord, my times are in your hands. So Job of old told us uh, that it's God who gives life and takes it away. The psalmist in Psalm 31 tells us, uh, or says to God, my times are in your hands. Um, obviously, these principles uh, had found a home in Elijah's heart uh, because even to the degree that he was in despair, uh, he, he knew that it was God's authority that dictated uh, the beginning and end of his life, not his own. I, I believe that um, really the, the question behind the question tonight for most people uh, I, I think some may have other various nuanced curiosities about the subject of suicide, but I think kind of the overarching question behind the question of, of what does the Bible say about suicide is I, I believe most people are wondering, the person that does commit suicide, do they go to heaven or hell? I think that's what many people are wondering. Okay. Um, so we're going to try to work through that. The the first thing we need to say, carefully and gently, but firmly, is that suicide is a sin. That's inescapable. Suicide is a sin. However, it is not the unforgivable sin. I don't know if some of you were taught the same way I was. At a young age, I was told by someone much older than me that I believe really knew the Bible, that if you commit suicide, you may have well stamped a one-way ticket to hell. Um, and that's based on some beliefs that I think 
kind of weave back into what we described last week when we talked about salvation, sin, and sanctification, how all that works, how the covenant we have between us and God through Christ, uh, how, that, how that deals with our sins and, and the fact that it's, it's not just a cold, calculated contract that has to do with you know, us um, making sure we repent for every little sin and, and then, you know, then God will let us in, but that Christ, when he died on the cross, that he uh, took care of sins both past, present, and future, but that none of those things, none of those facts, none of those great comforts and peace that comes in an, a robust understanding of what the gospel really does for us should cause us to be lackadaisical in our approach to sin, and this would be no different, okay? Um, the fact that suicide is not the unforgivable sin, that should not bring comfort to the person contemplating it. Uh, that should not be something that you add to the pro list if you're thinking through this. Please, if you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please don't let the fact that it is not guaranteed that that causes you to be separated from God for eternity, please don't write that down in the pro column uh, against the cons as you're trying to figure out whether or not you should do this. You should not do this. Don't do it. Please. There's, there's a bunch of other options that are way better. Suicide is not the right answer. Never, ever is it the right answer. Our relationship with God is about more than heaven or hell. And so if suicidal thoughts and, and depression and darkness have, have been overwhelming you to the point where you find yourself like Elijah, um, believing all of these things, some true, maybe, perhaps, but, I mean, he was in a difficult situation. There, there were people that wanted his life to be taken. However, there, there was other things he was also believing, we find out later in the passage, weren't, weren't necessarily true. And so that's, if you're in that place and that darkness and that, that despair has tried to, has tried to grasp and, and choke out any, any light or hope from your mind or heart, please understand um, that in the same way we see that God came and dealt with Elijah. He's, he's willing to come and deal with you. And, and sometimes he, he may come to you directly. Uh, sometimes he may come to you through a person. Um, but there is help and there is hope. And because of Christ, we can't ever give up. We can't. Guys, the tomb is empty. Because of that simple fact, we can't ever believe the lie that there's no hope. And I know I know that sometimes what we can see, that, that seems like the fact that there is no hope, but I'm just, I'm asking you to, to think to all the times, think about, think about what the crucifixion looked like for the disciples. How much hope do you think they had, right? Like day two, They're, the guy that was supposed to fix everything, the guy that was supposed to bring victory over the oppressors, the guy that was, they, they had given up the, the entirety of their lives to go and follow, that guy's been dead for 24 hours, what do you think, through, through, through their perspective, the little pinhole in, in the time that they were in, how much hope do you think they had? It was very little, but what they felt about it and what they could see was not all that there was. And we need to understand that for us, that is always true because of Christ, because of his triumphant victory over sin and death and hell and the grave, there is always hope for us. There is always reason to persevere. And oftentimes it won't be by our strength. Most of the time it won't be by our strength. We're going to need his help. And I know 
it can feel desperate, and I know it can feel dark, and I know it can feel like hope is, is a fairy tale. Um, but I'm asking you, because of Christ, to believe that there is always reason to trust God. He's proven that he's worthy of our trust. Uh, I think one of the issues with us, and I've mentioned, I've mentioned this recently in other contexts, one of the, the issues with us wanting to push for a definitive answer about the eternal outcome of somebody that commits suicide is, is that I think in general, not just pertaining to this issue, but in general, we should not be so quick to make assumptions about the eternity of others. Let me, let me give you a quick example. Um, and I realize that this creates some ambiguity and, and maybe some difficulty, but I'll try to deal with that as well. Okay, so uh, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to be with me forever. He said, there's going to be people that are going to come to him and they're going to say, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform miracles in your name? And what does Jesus say he's going to say to them? He's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. Now, these folks are prophesying, they're casting out demons, right? They're doing miracles in his name. Um, they, they have a more impressive resume than many of us, right? And so uh, what that tells us is many of the behaviors, many of the things that we try to use to make judgments about whether or not somebody's going to spend eternity with God or not can, can be skewed, right? We, you know, we look at somebody that maybe has been, you know, been a, a part of a, a church from the time they were born, and, and we assume, you know, 85, 90, 90 years old, they, they die, that, well, well, sure, they're in heaven. Yeah, but, but I can't see their heart, and neither can you. There's a bunch of people that have lived their whole life, you know, not even understanding the gospel, believing that the fact that they were in church all that time is why God would love and accept them. Right, And so I'm not trying to get a bunch of people out of heaven and into hell. Don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is we should be slower than we are sometimes to make judgments about other people's eternity. Okay, so on the flip side, right? So, so you've got these people coming to Jesus saying, hey, we did all this stuff. He's saying, away from me, I never knew you. But what do you think most people passing by the scene that day at Calvary would have assumed about the eternity of the thief on the cross? Right, Because if they didn't hear the exchange between him and Jesus, dude's up there bleeding out right? because he's been crucified for being a thief. He's probably been a rapscallion his whole life. I can relate with that guy a lot better than, than some of the other characters in the Bible. You know, um, <laughs> This guy was, he was a bad dude, so bad that he ended up getting hung on a cross next to Jesus, deserving that punishment. What do you think most people were assuming about his eternity? They were like, no, that guy's done for, surely. He's going to burn. But here's what they didn't know. He met the Savior. He believed what was required about Christ, our Messiah, and Jesus said he was going to be with him in paradise that day. And so all I'm saying is um, we have a tendency when, when we look at the lives of people um, to make judgments based on behavior and all the things we can observe. Um, and, and sure, you know, also in Matthew 7, Jesus says good trees bear good fruit, bad trees bear bad fruit. There are, you know, there are things that can give us you know, some degree of indication whether someone has put faith uh, in the finished work of Christ. And so there, there is comfort to be taken in that. But you know, 
I, I realize the problem I'm creating for myself in this because what, I, what I'm saying makes the funeral harder, and I know that. I'm, I'm the guy that has to think about that, right? Because you guys aren't preaching funerals. So I realize what I'm saying makes it more difficult for me because what does everybody at a funeral want to hear? They're in heaven, right? They, and it really doesn't matter if that person ever saw a Bible, right, or heard the word Jesus or set foot inside of a place of worship, most people in our culture just assume because they misunderstand what eternity is about and what relationship with God is about. Most people, what do they do? Somebody dies, they look at their life. And if, if, there was, if there's somebody else that they can think of that was worse than them, typically they're, yeah, they're, they probably made it, right? You know, they weren't Hitler, so surely they made it. That's, that's the typical comparison. Um, you know, and, and we can do one of two things about that. We can, we can be mad. Well, there's lots of things you can do about it. You can be mad about it, sad about it, or we can let it compel us to be uh, gospel missionaries everywhere we go, understanding that the vast majority of people that are attending funerals that are happening in this country, whether it was for suicide or whatever other reason the cost of death, death was, they're, they're assuming that person's eternal outcome had everything to do with what they could observe about their life. Most people... Friends, don't understand the beauty of the gospel. Don't understand that it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus did. Most people don't understand that there is, there is no amount of more good things we can do or, or less bad things we can do that's going to tip the scales in our favor, but it is only faith in the person and work of Christ that matters when it comes to eternity. Um, it's incredibly good news, but it's also incredibly counterintuitive. Um, and it's a gospel that we have to live and preach. And so I, I would just caution us, um, because here's the reality, guys. <clears throat> Could somebody committing suicide be an indicator of whether or not their hope really was in Christ? Yes, it could. Can we make that judgment? No, we can't. So what do we do? What is, the, what is the guy in my position that, that is, is potentially going to have to preach to the family and friends of that person that's, that's laying there? Um, my commitment and what the Lord has been stirring in my heart recently about that fact is, and about that situation is um, that my job there is not to, um, I think this is what oftentimes preachers feel pressure to do, <laughs> talk to family, this, this happens, talk to family and friends come up with some evidence that this guy was not that bad, right? And, and then go to the funeral and talk about, hey, they did this, they volunteered, this or that. Th that that's the kind of stuff that comes out. And instead of getting up and talking to that family, whether suicide was the cause of death or whatever it was, uh, about how great that person was, I need to take that opportunity to talk to all of those people there about how great God is. Because our hope for any person that is, that is laying there, their life being celebrated by their family and friends in a funeral, for any person, we, sh we should not focus so much on the behaviors that we observed and, and then take our comfort in that, have peace in the fact that we observed some behaviors that were potentially Christian-like and assume that their eternity is, is, is a good one based on that. What we should focus on is the fact that God is incredibly merciful and at the same time perfectly just and that those are not in conflict with one another. We should focus upon the grace and the mercy that pours forth from the cross of Christ. We should focus upon all of the evidence we have of God's goodness and God's power and God's grace to save, and in that, take our peace 
and our comfort. That's where we should focus, and that's the only hope we have, whether someone dies from suicide, homicide, or, or some other cause. Our faith and our hope and our rejoicing should be in the goodness of God because that person's eternity hangs on that alone anyways. It's not going to be their behavior. It's not going to be their observable tendencies. It's not going to be their church attendance record. Right? That's harder and more messy than just coming in and telling everybody, hey, they prayed a prayer one time and so I'm sure they're in heaven. That's a lot cleaner and easier, and, it's, and it satiates the majority of people. But it's lacking integrity. We need to point people to put their faith in God and him alone, because he is the king over eternity. He is the righteous judge. He is the one that will make the determination. And whatever he does will be right. And it will be loving. Because he's perfect. And if we can't be comforted by that, then there's cause for concern. Verses 5 through 8. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Uh, So God sent the Panera angel (laughs) uh, to Elijah in the middle of the wilderness, which I think is amazing. Um, So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Uh, So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, uh, the mountain of God. I think it's very interesting here and very instructive for us how God deals with Elijah. Guys, what did Elijah just get done doing? Okay, Elijah just got done praying to God and saying, kill me. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I'm desperate. I see no reason whatsoever to continue. Kill me. What's God's response? He sends an angel. (laughs) He doesn't ignore Elijah and his cry of desperation. He doesn't scorn him. And he does not judge Elijah harshly for his despair. What does he do? He responds with care and he responds with compassion. And friends, this is incredibly instructive for us. Because as I said before, God in this instance sent an angel to Elijah. He's not above doing that today. But oftentimes what he'll do is he'll send you to somebody that's crying out to God and saying, kill me. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I don't see any reason for hope. Sometimes he'll send you. And so we need to learn from the way God dealt with Elijah that this is the way we come to somebody struggling this way. We don't scorn them. We surely don't ignore them, friends. And sometimes we need need to be praying As gospel missionaries and as a community of people that genuinely love others, we need to be asking God for supernatural discernment because sometimes people won't cry out like Elijah did. Sometimes they'll suffer in silence. Sometimes they'll fall prey to the lies they believe about the stigma that if they say something, that somebody is going to scorn them or judge them harshly or just ignore them, that nobody cares enough. Why even waste the breath? 
So sometimes we need the help of the Holy Spirit to see past masks and facades and, 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 and know that people are struggling this way. So we need to be people that ask good questions. And we need to be people that when somebody does finally open up and say something, we don't brush it off as a cry for attention or, or whatever. And, and listen, guys, I, I, look, I understand um, I went to middle school, okay, so I understand that sometimes people say really wild stuff because it's a cry for attention, but we can't treat it that way. Um, we can't just make that judgment without getting in there, getting messy, and, and, and really searching out, by God's help, what's going on here. Is, is there an issue? Is, is it a cry for attention? Then, then let's call them to repentance for that. Let's walk them through that process. But what we can't do, what we can't do is ignore it. God didn't ignore Elijah. He sent an angel to attend him. And oftentimes, God may be commissioning us to be an angel sent, man, to a desperate person that's crying out for help. And so, uh, we also can't, when, when God does enlist us into that difficult situation, we can't scorn people, um, and we can't judge them harshly. I, I, <clears throat> you know, there's... We're going to get to this more in the next several verses, but I'll just, I'll just say it briefly. There, there are way too many variables and way too many possibilities for the causes of this type of darkness and despair and hopelessness for us to just pigeonhole with black and white, clean, uh, you know, one-line answers what somebody should do if they're feeling this way. There's too many possibilities of the source. There's too many variables. Each life is different, and so we can't just come to somebody that's struggling this way and say, well, if you had more faith, you wouldn't be feeling this way. Listen to me. If you are a part of this church, and I hear that you say that to somebody, it's going to be ugly. Don't ever just attack somebody as if the reason for their struggle is a lack of faith. Could it be? Yes. But you can't make that determination just car blanche off the jump, well, that's why anybody ever struggles with darkness and depression. If they just had more faith or prayed more, if they just read their Bible more, if they were just more spiritual, don't do that. Don't make quick, harsh judgments. Don't scorn people when they do the thing that God would have them to do, that 1 John says they should do, which is to walk in the light, to share their struggle, to open up with their burden, and ask for people to help them carry it. Don't treat people harshly that do that. Don't scorn them. Don't, don't act like they're somehow lesser than. Um, because the other thing we're going to see is <laughs> And Elijah's not the only one, guys. Who, who are we talking about here that was struggling, despairing all the way for his life? This is Elijah, right? This is, dude just got done calling fire down from heaven, right? And the dude that in a few more chapters is going to ride up to heaven in a chariot of fire. I mean, talking about God's stamp of approval on your life, like, I'd, I'd, I'd say he did a fairly good job. He got to ride to heaven in a fire chariot. Okay? So, I, I doubt it was lack of faith or spirituality that led to his despair. Is that the case sometimes? Yeah, yeah, probably. Yes, for sure. But not always. And so, let us not make quick judgments. Let us not scorn folks that reach out for help. We can't do that. Uh, God responds with care and compassion, and so should we. Uh, verses 9 through 14. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking uh, in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. But the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now, first thing I want to say is... um, we, we cannot ignore, be scornful, or judge harshly um, those that are, are struggling with, with darkness, depression, thoughts of suicide. Um, but I do think this is interesting how the Lord uh, deals with Elijah as far as, you know, he finds him in this cave isolating himself. Um, this, this, to me, is, is the equivalent of, of grabbing Elijah by the shoulders and going, wake up! You know what I mean? I mean what, what is, what's the earthquake about? What's the fire about? What's going on? I think God's getting his attention because I think sometimes, and, and I've, you know, I, I've, I've experienced downward turns in my emotional state. I, I've, I've counseled and, and tried to love people through uh, similar situations. Sometimes you get this, when, I mean, you, you spend enough time in darkness and despair. You spend enough time in hopelessness. You kind of get this glaze over your eyes, so to speak, this kind of catatonic, um, only one perspective, and it's, it's all hopelessness. It's all darkness. It's all, uh, there's, there's no reason for anything. It's, it's like, you know, um, you know, it's like Ecclesiastes on repeat, right? Um, with, with, without the end part where he's like, yeah, but God is good. Like, it's going to be okay. You know, like, there's, that part's not there. It's just only hopeless. It's just only bad. It's just only negative. Um, and sometimes it, it's not scornful or harsh or, or unloving. Um, sometimes to grab somebody by the shoulders and shake them. Wake up! You know, sometimes that's necessary. And I believe God, in love, was shaking Elijah a little bit with an earthquake and a fire. I don't know what the fire is. What's he, I mean, what is that? I, like a big tornado of fire? I, I have no idea what that even looks like. Um, but it sounds intense, and it would make me pay attention. Like, yes, sir, what's next? What are we talking about? <laughs> I'm with you, right? I'm not... I'm not over here in the corner um, just thinking about how bad life is. Uh, clearly, you want to say something to me. Um, so the, the other major thing I want to pull out of verses 9 through 14 is this. There are many potential causes for despair and hopelessness. Now, I think we see from the verses above, um, you know, Elijah may have very well been exhausted, dehydrated, and malnourished. I think it's very interesting. Uh, that hyper-spiritual people would tell you that if somebody has depression, there's a demon. Well, maybe. Maybe there's demonic activity happening. Maybe there's an attack from Satan. But maybe they're not eating well. What did, what did, what, what, are you more spiritual than God? Because how, what was God's first response to Elijah's call for death? And, and I'm going to fall asleep under this juniper tree and hope I don't wake up. Did he, did he meet him with a, with a Bible study? No, he showed up with some Panera bread and water, like hot stone baked bread. 
Elijah, son, get up and eat and drink something. And then what did he, he do? He said, and then go back to sleep. Sometimes depression, there are, there are physical factors that can affect the way our perception and, and, and our brain is working. And so sometimes it, it can be as simple as somebody just not taking care of themselves physically. And, and that's one thing that is, is, is potentially a major factor. And so again, that's why we don't judge things harshly until we get in there. And, and, and I realize that... <clears throat> I realize for some of you, the thought of, of somebody suffering with this type of depression, darkness, struggling, suicidal thoughts, the fact of, uh, or the, the potential of them coming to you with that kind of struggle is terrifying because you seem, or you feel woefully inadequate to address something like that. Um, and, and I want to say to you that, uh, you know, humility is a good thing, but also we have to realize that um, in all that we do for the Lord, we are, we are always heavily depending upon God's grace and help um, and, and his strength. And so, you know, if, if we get to the point where we can handle everything that we're doing for Jesus on mission in, in and of our own strength, then we've, we've probably settled short of what it is he would have us to do because um, I don't feel qualified either to try to talk to somebody that has decided that life's not worth living. Um, and when somebody comes to me with a struggle like that, uh, it's it it hurts. I hurt for them, so so empathy kicks in, and like I just hate the fact that they're struggling. But then, simultaneously at the same time, I am I am driven at light speed to the feet of Jesus, asking for His help. Lord, I don't know what to do here, and I'm going to need Your help. And so, and and what you may find is that. You're, you're an available first person for somebody to open up to, and part of your job is to take their hand and lovingly walk with them to help find somebody that does have more tools to help them. Sometimes that's what it looks like. And so, um, but it's, it can't be ignoring. It can't be scorning. It can't be harsh judgment, okay? Uh, so there's many potential causes for despair and hopelessness. I'm not um, saying that I'm, I'm hitting them all here, but I'm just going to give you some things to think about. I think one of the factors for Elijah was that the brother was hungry and he was thirsty, so diet is an issue. Um, one, one thing that I'll mention for some of you that maybe have, have struggled with anxiety, depression, um, suicidal thoughts, or know somebody that has, uh, there are several, several uh, case studies that link um, various degrees of alcohol consumption being a depressant to um, suffering with depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts, and so that's just something to consider. Um, uh, you know, I'm not uh, trying to take us back to the 1930s or whatever. I'm just saying that is and can be a factor uh, according to the scientific community. So other um, potential causes for despair and hopelessness, just, just emotional distress, just one thing after another of emotional taxation, uh, things that push people down in, into a kind of a darkness and a pit. So it, it, it can be physical as far as diet and stuff like that. It can be emotional. There can be spiritual issues. Sometimes depression is spiritual attack. We have an enemy. His name is Satan, and he would like people to be uh, nullified and kind of taken out of the game, very just focused on how dark everything is without hope, because we see um, that when that happens, um, Elijah's situation and, and the way he went with it is not uncommon. What did Elijah do when he got down to this place of that deep of despair? Brother went out in the wilderness and laid under a juniper tree. And was like, I'm done. <laughs> right? So 
Two chapters earlier, he's fighting the prophets of Baal, calling fire down from heaven. Um, here he's completely worn out, under spiritual attack, probably physically uh, exhausted, and he just gives up. He just takes himself out of the fight. So there can be diet issues, emotional issues, there can be spiritual issues. Sometimes sin in your life can be a factor, right? But again, we don't want to jump to that conclusion, which I think has been the temptation for some, some hyper-spiritual Pharisees, um, that somebody makes themselves vulnerable and actually does what the Bible says and shares their struggle with someone else, and they go, oh, well, you must have a sin, a secret sin. Maybe, like maybe, but there's a whole bunch of other potential options as well. And so we have to be willing to pay the price to walk through a process with people to help assess what's, what's going on. Maybe there is sin that they're not aware of that's a part of the issue, but not always. Not always. There can be chemical issues. Sometimes there's just stuff not working right in the brain. We live in a cursed, fallen world, and sometimes, sometimes things uh, aren't working as they should. And so that, again, is another place where you know, when you, you look at the other factors and, and perhaps um, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, you know that, that those are the factors or that trying to bring remedies to those potential variables is, is helping, there may be yet another area where um, there's, there's physiological or chemical issues that are happening. There's, there's good news on, on two fronts of that. A, Jesus is a healer and he can handle that too, and so we can take that to him and ask for help. Also, because of common grace and uh, because of what we know today as far as um, you know, help with medicine, things of that nature, sometimes the right answer then is to seek help in that way. And uh, there's absolute, it's not, it, to, think that, to think that that's a lack of faith is to call Elijah eating the bread a lack of faith. Okay, There was a common grace answer as a part of the picture that God knew of why Elijah was sitting under the juniper tree wishing to die. Part of the problem, I don't know what all the issues were, it's not totally made clear, but one that is made totally clear is the brother had not eaten and had not drank anything for a while, and he was physically exhausted. And so God came and compassionately met that need. And, and what some people would say is, well, he, no, he should have just prayed more. If he'd have prayed more. No, the brother needed to eat, and God knew that. And so how is that any different than another? That's, that's a common grace, hungry, thirsty, food, water, Right? God brought a solution. If, if there's something going on uh, chemically, physiologically, something going on in the brain that uh, we have common grace answers that, that God has given us the scientific ability to, to be able to bring an answer to that. Now, listen, I realize there's, there's, there's godly reasons to seek help in that area. There's ungodly reasons to seek help in that area. And I'm not promoting in any way everybody go grab some pills if you don't feel good on a day, right? But I am saying None of us should judge anybody that explores that option and trusts by God's grace that that could help. And that may be a journey that God takes somebody on, okay? Um, and using those common grace options is not in any way, you're not a lesser Christian, um, you know, why can't I just do this myself? All of that is because for too long we have treated issues like this um, as if somehow it's always indicative of a lack of faith. And that is not true or fair at all. And that's a lot of times why people aren't open about it. I think that has a lot to do, sadly, with why there's three times more suicides than homicides in Ohio. 
because people are afraid if they open up and say, I'm struggling in this way, they're going to be rejected, they're going to be scorned, they're going to be judged harshly. And so instead, they just stay stuck in that darkness and they only then see one way out. And so if, look, I can't, we, we, have, we have very little to say about how the rest of the world's going to treat this, but we have a whole lot to say about how God's people are going to look at it and how we're going to treat people that are struggling. And we, because Christ has been compassionate and he has cared for us, because Christ has been good and exceedingly merciful to us, surely we then have mercy and compassion and care to pour out for others. Amen? Amen. It's clear, however, also, it wasn't just physical, um, as far as Elijah's darkness and despair. Uh, he was also believing lies about himself. He was believing lies that he was alone uh, and, and that God was done with him. Um, so Elijah, what Elijah wanted to do clearly, so his first move was leave his servant take a day's journey out in the wilderness, find a juniper tree, lay under it, ask God to die, go to sleep. Okay? Then God uh, sends an angel. He, you know, sends, says, hey, get up, eat something. You're going to need this for the journey. Eats, sleeps, gets some water in him, and then he goes on a 40-day trek to Mount Horeb. But again, he ends up doing what? Finding a cave and crawling back into it and Assumedly, if God hadn't come and started shaking stuff and lighting it on fire and like calling him out of that, he would have probably been happy just to isolate again, find a dark place where nobody's going to mess with me or talk to me, and I'm not going to have to explain uh, how I'm feeling, <laughs> uh, and hopefully I'll die, right? That's, that's still where he's at. So what Elijah wanted to do was isolate and hide. What does God do? Instead of allowing him to do that, God lovingly calls him to mission and to community. Uh, we see this in, in um, 9 through 14, uh, and, and also on, the, on down through 15. So Elijah had believed the lie that he was the only one left serving God. Okay, so how many times is the lie that Satan uses to get people into despair is that you're the only one struggling? You're the only one that's this messed up. You're the only one that can't do this. You're the only one fighting like this. You're by yourself. That lie over and over and over again. Even if there's evidence to the contrary all around you, when you hear it over and over and over again to the point that it becomes this drumbeat in your mind, people start to believe it. What does Elijah find out, though? God sends him to do what? To go anoint two kings that he's going to use, right? That So... Already, and he says that he's going to leave 7,000 people in Israel who have not bowed down to Baal and who have not kissed him. So what was Elijah saying? I'm the only one left. All your people have torn down your altars. All your people, everybody, it's only me, and they're going to kill me. It's over. What's God say? First of all, I've got a guy that I want you to anoint. His name's Elisha, so go meet him. He's cool. He's going to be your friend and hang out with you, right? So he calls him to community. First of all, you got to stop being by yourself, bro. I'm, i got a friend for you. Secondly, no, you're not. You're not the only one. I always have a remnant. I always have a plan. There's always hope. I'm working. You can't always see the factors. You can't always see everything I'm doing. You don't always see all the variables because you aren't me. But what you have to do is trust even when you can't see 
that I'm doing what I said I'm going to do. His promises did not fall void. So Elijah was believing lies. Was it spiritual attack? Was it, was it himself? Was it physical issues he was struggling with? Did he have chemical issues? I don't know. I, I, I don't really need to know. I know that something was happening, and he was believing some lies. And part of what God did is he grabbed him by the shoulders, shook him, literally, with an earthquake. Wake up! Now, you're not going to lay in this cave and die. No, your request, not granted. No, you cannot die. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to meet Elisha, and you're going to disciple him, because I need him to carry your mantle and to go on and continue on what I was having you do. I need you to go anoint these kings, because I've got 7,000 more people that they're going to lead, because I'm not done yet. Woo! Imagine, and that's what I'm saying, friends. I, I know, I know for some of you, you've been where Elijah's at. All that you could see was everybody hates me. Everybody's abandoned me. There's nobody left. There's no reason for hope. I'm gonna die too. These are the things. This was the track running over and over and over in Elijah's head. My question to you, friends, was, is, was that true? But did he feel it? Did he believe it? So much so that he was saying it to God, and I think he knew that you're not going to pull the wool over God's eyes, right? Yes, he believed it. Yes, he thought it was true. Yes, he was willing to ask God to kill him because of that belief. There's no reason to do this anymore. But it wasn't real, and it wasn't true. And sometimes, and I'm not trying to reduce all of the struggles of anxiety and depression down to this, but sometimes it's a factor, friends. Sometimes our feelings don't line up with reality. Many times our feelings don't line up with reality. And so what we need to do is, when, if, if we have anchors in our soul, and we're going to get to that more in a minute, but if we have anchors in our soul of truth that we know is unchanging, when our feelings begin to come and to try to be contrary to those things we know to be true, primarily about God and his unchanging character, his faithfulness to his promises and the power and might of his hand, if we have those anchors for our soul, then when our feelings come and try to bring a contrary message to that, we can know that something other than reality is trying to press in and trying to change our perception, and we can reject those by faith. Because of what we have, and, and, and I, I don't think, God is not above doing what he did with Elijah and shaking you by the shoulders, but even in this way, but I believe today because of the fact that we have a Savior that died in our place and he rose from the grave and we have access to the Holy Spirit that there's typically much less need for that because we have been given the blessed uh, beauty of, of actual gospel-centered community and we have now the church uh, who is called to bear each other's burdens and to walk in the light and to live in such a way that when one of us mourns, we all mourn. And when one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. Because of all these precious gifts and promises that God has given us, um, there, sh there, should be, there should be less need for Elijah in the cave, earthquake, fire jams, right? We, we've got a bunch of things that God has given us that, sh that, should, that should help us uh, not, not have to come to such <laughs> uh, drastic measures. Um, it costs a bunch of drastic measures to give it to us, but now we have it um, by God's grace and faith. And so... Uh, I'm very, very thankful for that. Um, I, I want to say this to you as well, out of these verses, uh, out of 9 through 14, that depression is not disqualification, okay? Um, 
When it comes to being downcast, when it comes to being hopeless, when it comes to being completely overcome by darkness and not having a shred of light or hope in, in, on the horizon in the way that you're thinking, I, th- I think Elijah was there, right? And I'm not trying to have a contest between your darkest day and Elijah's day, but again, the brother hiked out into the wilderness a day's journey, took no supplies, laid down under a juniper tree, and said, God, I'm done. Please kill me. He's having a rough week, right? This is not, this is dark. This is tough. This is despair. This is anxiety. This is darkness, okay? Many people would treat somebody at that level of despair as if automatically they're disqualified to be used by God. How did God treat Elijah? He came with care and compassion. Then what did he do? He said, nope. Part of the solution to this is, I'm not going to disqualify you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to re-up your call, and I'm going to demand that you get back out on mission because part of your healing, part of your hope being restored, part of you realizing that there is a reason to have joy in this life is because I'm going to put you back to work for me. I'm going to, I'm going to open up a bit and, and re-give you a glimpse of what it is I'm doing in the earth, and you're going to see that there is reason because of me for hope. Depression is not disqualification. It's not just Elijah, by the way. Um, in, in case, you know, you don't like the Old Testament, here, here's another one. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Uh, this is, who, who wrote Corinthians? Quick pop quiz. Paul, okay? Pretty spiritual dude. Yeah? Wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, right? <laughs> Planted most of the churches that, like, started everything we're doing today. Yeah, big, big, big deal. Pretty, pretty full of faith guy. Here's 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. Here's the key, friends. Paul did have a benefit that Elijah didn't. Paul had seen the risen Christ. Paul stood more in the place we are than than the place Elijah was, right? Elijah had a foretaste. He had seen foreshadowings. He understood that God was going to bring redemption to all the earth somehow, but he didn't, didn't have all the pieces totally together. Paul, this brother saw the pieces. I mean, he wrote the letters that gave us the pieces, And so he understood the hope of the gospel. And even he, in the midst of shipwreck and persecution for his faith, got to the point where he despaired even of life. But the difference, because he understood the power of the cross, and he understood the power of the resurrection, and he understood the grace of God, he was able to say, but this happened so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but that we would trust in God Almighty. And so the difference, the perspective that that we have the benefit of that that maybe Elijah didn't is because of all that God has done, because he's given us his Holy Spirit. When we are in the midst of despair and darkness, if, if, if we, like Paul, will cling to the truth of what the gospel tells us, we will know that even in the midst of our darkest hour and our deepest despair, there is reason for hope and that God is at work. 
and that he is forming and shaping and doing something with us that is not only for our own growth, but because we are a part of an overall redemptive plan and purpose that he is weaving in all of the earth. There's something going on. But depression and despair and anxiety are not disqualification. Don't take yourself out of the game. Don't let your accuser, Satan, take you out of the game because you're struggling with any of these symptoms or issues. I'm glad Paul, I'm glad Paul didn't find a juniper tree. Right? I'm glad Paul didn't decide, you know what, I can't do this anymore. I'm glad he kept going until God said, okay, son, you're done. Come on home. Glad he finished his race. This, this just shows us how much more we need to understand, friends, that the stigma that surrounds struggling with depression and anxiety, suicidal thoughts, um, it, all, all forms of, of mental darkness, anguish, anxiety, the stigma surrounding that is ridiculous. We ha- please, just think with me. We are talking about the Apostle Paul, Okay? If he got to the point where he despaired even of life, where he <laughs> did not want to be alive anymore, and it wasn't, it's not the same as later when he says to, to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's not, it, that's not what he's talking about. He wasn't in a hopeful, joyous moment. It was so hard. Life was so hard. There was so much stacked against him. He got to the point where he was tired of living. If he can get there, if Elijah The guy that thwarted the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, the guy that rode a fire chariot home to heaven, can struggle like this. How is it that we ever treat anybody like they're lesser than because they have some struggle like this? Because they're going through something like this? Because their struggle looks like this? Because they're being attacked in this way? Because this is part of the way Satan's trying to take them out of the game. This is part of how Satan's trying to get them out of the battle. Why do we look at them different? Why do we treat them in such a way as if um, it's got to be that they're less spiritual, okay? Because I I just have to assume nobody else rode chariots of fire home to heaven, okay? So Elijah, on the spiritual maturity chart, if there is one, I think he's rating pretty high. Apostle Paul, probably maxing it out. Both despaired for their life. Both got to the point where they literally had no desire to live. Okay? So don't judge yourself harshly if you're struggling in this way. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. And don't you dare judge others harshly because of this. Love them. Take them to Panera if that's what they need, man. Maybe they need some broccoli cheese soup in a bread bowl and some water. Or get them a tea. Really go all out. Love them big. All right? Um, Verses 15 through 18. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king of Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi. Uh, You shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat, and Abel Meholah. Uh, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not 
bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Remember? You remember what Elijah was saying? You remember what he believed? I'm the last one. I'm the only one. I'm all alone. Was he right? He wasn't right. He'd come to believe something that wasn't true. And that had contributed to the extreme loneliness and extreme despair. And so, many times, when we're in that depth of darkness, part of what we need to do, whether we're a friend that's walking with someone through that struggle or we ourselves are walking through that struggle, is we need to submit to God all that we're believing in regards to that subject and ask him, is there, is there things I'm believing here? Is there things I've come to, to believe as if it's a 100% fact that may not be reality? Um, because Satan is the father of something. I can't remember what it is. What is it? Lies, that's what it is. Satan is the father of lies. Not surprising. Not surprising that it goes this way sometimes. Um, from, from verses 15 through 18, I want to give you these couple things. Mission defeats depression. Feeling useless and hopeless often go hand in hand. Let me say that again. Feeling useless and hopeless often go hand in hand. To truly believe that God has commissioned you to be a herald of the most important message to ever be spoken can break the back of both of those lies. Oftentimes, despair to the point of not caring about your life anymore, down at the roots of that are feelings of uselessness, rejection, and, and complete hopelessness. Understanding that God has set upon you a mantle to be an ambassador of the most important message, the most important news that will ever reach the ears of a human, to know that you are a part of that uh, and to really receive that and understand it for what it is, um, it can break the back of those lies. Because if you have been commissioned to be a herald of the most important message that anyone will ever hear, then you are neither useless nor are you hopeless. The other, the other thing that we need to pull out of 15 through 18 is, no matter how much you've come to believe it, friends, hear me. You are not alone. Elijah believed he was the only one left serving God or fighting the good fight. He was wrong. God sends him to meet Elisha, who's supposed to, he's supposed to disciple, and two other brothers that he's supposed to anoint as kings. The, one of the number one lies that Satan wants you to believe is that you're alone. Okay? For, oh, just for a second, think, think through this with me. Even if every other human on the planet was a dastardly rapscallion that cared about nothing but themselves, and they're, they're, that there was no other human companion because of what Christ has done, because of the promise he's made to never leave us nor forsake us, we just can't ever believe that we're alone. We just, we got to quit letting Satan win any ground with that stupid lie, right? Let's quit wasting time on that one. Let's make him get some new material, because he's been selling that one for a long time, and the reason he keeps selling it is because people keep buying it. Because here's the other thing I know. First of all, because God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you, you are never alone in, in that way. Also, I know for a fact not every single human on the planet is a dastardly, self-focused rapscallion with no love in their heart. Right? Maybe most, <laughs> but not all. So there are those that love you. There are those that care for you. And, and, and many of you right now are pushing back. 
Yeah, well, you don't know my life. You don't know who's around me. Listen to me right now. If you're sitting right here, I don't care if this is the first time you've walked in this place. If you think that what's going on in your life is that you're completely alone and no human is going to love you, let me say something to you. Here's part of what the gospel does. Here's part of what the love of God does to people. It makes people love others without having to know them. Love others in spite of their flaws. Love others even though they're not perfect. Love others even when they're unlovely. And so what I'm saying to you today is you've stumbled into a place that if you've been believing the lie that you're alone... The only way you stay alone, the only way you walk out of here today and stay alone is if you choose to. Because you grab anybody in here before you leave and let them know, hey, I've been feeling lonely and I could really use somebody to be my friend. And I guarantee you, not because they're a great person, not because they're altruistic, not because uh, you know, everybody in here is uh, you know, number one A-plus Christian, but simply because I do know that a whole bunch of people in here understand that what that what God has done for them through Christ means that they are loved and that has increased their capacity for love and they will love you because of Christ. They will care for you. They will take the time to get to know you. They will press in past even the walls that you put up. You'll get to the point where you'll be annoyed that so many people want to love you so much. You'll have a new problem to complain about, but it won't be loneliness. If you've been believing the lie, you're alone and you're not in a community group, get in a community group, please. Pay the price, do what you gotta do. Change the schedule, do something. That's part of what that is supposed to accomplish, is get you to the point where you're not just doing the surface smile, let me get my mask on, let me go in here, pretend long enough so that nobody asks any hard questions and I can skate out. Community group's not gonna let you do that because you're gonna get in there and you're gonna study the scriptures together and you're gonna ask each other hard questions and you're gonna pray for real stuff. And so... Um, maybe you were in one at one time and you thought you had a bad experience. Go back. Community groups are an essential way that we battle against this lie from the devil that you're alone. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. And ultimately, because of Christ, you never are. I don't care if you don't have a human buddy on this whole wretched earth. You've got the God of the universe who said he's with you. He's never going to leave you. You are not alone. Neither was Elijah. <sighs> Amen. Um, turn with me quickly to Psalm 13. <laughs> I want to give this to you. Uh, I intended to say more about it, but um, I'm not going to. So I'm going to give this to you, and if you know somebody struggling with depression, anxiety, hopelessness, despair, uh, suicidal thoughts, I, I believe Psalm 13 is a place that uh, we, we can take them in love and, and try to um, help them see some, some truth that, that could be helpful in their journey, um, and we'll just pull a quick principle out of this. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? This, this is a Psalm of David, uh, commonly thought that this is either him lamenting during the time that he's fleeing from Saul or Absalom. So both really tough times in his life. If you don't know about that, go back and read it. Uh, he's, he's having a hard way. Here, here's, here's what he's saying. How long, O Lord, uh, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But, but, I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Praise God. Guys, this is a pattern right here. If you're struggling, first of all, see what, what does David do? Does he sugarcoat it? No, man. He says the truth. Here's, I'm really struggling, Lord. How long, oh Lord, is it going to be like this? I'm desperate for help. He lets him know that, God, if I don't get some help from you, I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. It's that bad. It's that desperate. I'm that far down the hole. But how's he end it? Even though all of that's true, David's in that much despair. He's in that much mental and emotional anguish. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Even in the midst of that, he understands There's, there is reason for hope. There is reason for joy. God has dealt bountifully with him, and primarily he understands that God is the God of salvation for humans that don't deserve it, that God is merciful and that God is loving. And, and if he has nothing else to cling to in the midst of that darkness and despair, he's got those things. And he, what he's saying is, that's enough. That's enough for me. Some of you have cried out, how long, O Lord, or something like that. Some of you have cried out in frustration. Some of you have, some of you have prayed, some of you have read, some of you have done everything you possibly can, and, and, and yet you have this, this question, why won't depression lift? And I just want to say that, uh, I, just, I just quickly want to give you this, this idea, and I'm not, I'm not trying to compare physical pain to the anguish of, of mental um, despair and, and, and the struggle that comes with depression. I understand that they're two totally different things and the suffering is totally different, but I, I'm just drawing a principle here, okay? Why won't the depression lift? Perhaps you've cried out like David, why? How long, O oh Lord, am I going to struggle like this? Sometimes God allows things so that you will deal with the real issue. I, I learned this recently. I, I, I had a back surgery this earlier this year because I was I was in incredible, debilitating pain. I had burning nerve pain shooting straight down through my rumpus and into my legs. I had to find a church-appropriate word for your backside, so that's rumpus. Um, I, I don't know if any of you ever had anything like this. I'm telling you, it was wretched. Couldn't sleep at night. Uh, could barely function during the day. And um, there, there was, there was a, a specific day that, that I remember I was carrying... I'm, I'm stubborn and, and, and ignorant at times, and so I'm, I'm having this pain, but I'm carrying a 40-foot ladder, and I got to the place, and I set it down, and I, I kind of crumpled to a knee, and I caught the side of a deck, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and my body's convulsing because I'm in so much pain, and I can't get back up, and I remember being there, and in, in this moment of frustration, I'm, I'm just like, why do I have to have this pain? And I'm and like, tears are welling in my eye, and I'm, I'm also seriously thinking I might have to call somebody because I don't know if I can move, and... Um, there was no booming voice from heaven that answered me. I didn't get earthquake and fire. Um, but immediately I began to think about the nature of pain and that pain is really telling you about a problem that you wouldn't otherwise know about. And so out of that experience, I 
finally understood, okay, the wise thing to do here is go get an MRI and, and come to find out that I had a bulging disc in my back that was pinching a nerve and that that was causing the pain uh, and that that nerve was super inflamed. Um, and, and, but, he, but here's the truth about it. If, if it hadn't hurt, and I wouldn't have known about it, but it was pinching like that, eventually what would have happened is the nerve would have been damaged to the point that it would have caused my leg to go completely numb and I would have either lost the ability to walk right or walk at all for the rest of my life. But because it hurt, I realized there's something going on here. And, and so what am I saying? Oftentimes depression is, is like that burning nerve pain that I had. It's a warning pointing to something deeper that needs to be dealt with. And ignoring it or putting a Band-Aid on it may lead to more catastrophic damage. Now, the question probably naturally that comes is, what, then what is the deeper thing? Well, I don't know. It could be something chemical or physiological. It could be emotional. It could be spiritual. It could be sin in your life or any combination of these things. The point is that ignoring it or hiding it, hoping that it goes away on its own, is not a wise approach. Verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 13 tell us that no matter the cause of depression or suicidal thoughts, if we can follow the wisdom of the psalmist here, we need not be overcome. This does not, hear me please, friends, I'm not trying to trivialize this. This does not guarantee we will never struggle or fight with darkness and despair, but it does guarantee that we will not be defeated by it. Please see the difference there. May we be a people who are so full of joy and gratitude that depression and hopelessness are vanquished. May we be a people who refuse to struggle alone, knowing that there is much more at stake than our own life, but the lives and eternities of many. And may we be a people that when those who struggle reach out for help, we are willing and able by God's grace to walk with them for their good and God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we love you and we thank you that there is hope in every situation because of you. I thank you, Lord, that your word is not whitewashed, that it is not uh, sugar-coated, but that you let us see in your word the real deal struggles of people and you let us see how it is you handled it so that we would have instruction and we would have um, example for how it is that we can participate um, in helping others that are struggling, or how we can fight when it's we ourselves that are struggling in this way. And so, God, um, I just pray right now for every single person that is a part of Love City or is connected somehow relationally to Love City that is either struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts or uh, is somebody that loves one of those people and, and is trying to help them and walk uh, with them through it. God, I pray for every single one of those people now, and I ask you, Lord, by your sovereign grace and by the power of your spirit to intercede and to help. 
And God, because of all the variables, because there's so many things that are possible, there's so many potential causes, I'm not going to try to run a list to you of what to do, but God, I'm asking you by your supernatural wisdom, because you know all things, that you can see into the deep chambers of the hearts of every person, that you understand the inner workings of every person's mind, God, I ask that you would get into those situations. If nobody else has prayed and asked you to come uh, by faith into those difficult, dark situations, God, we stand right now as a church community by faith, and we ask you, Lord, to help. And we thank you that you said that we could bring our needs, we could bring our desperations, we could bring all of the things that trouble us to you, and that you would greet us like sons and daughters, and that you would receive those prayers, and that you would answer. And so, Lord, we submit those things to you. Lord, uh, whether we're involved in helping or not, we realize that issues of deep darkness and anxiety and struggle that you are the only hope. There is many ways that you bring healing, and we are welcome to, to, to all of those, and, and we, we're not going to trivialize or, or treat as if they're lesser than uh, any of the ways that you might bring healing. We just ask, God, that you would cause us to be a compassionate people and a loving people and a discerning people. God, I pray that nobody that's a part of Love City could walk in and out of here and be struggling this way and somebody not stop them and see past it. I ask you to give us discerning eyes, God. Give us sensitive spirits. Um, help us by your Holy Spirit to be, to be faithful brothers and sisters that are looking for opportunities to walk with our family through struggle. Help us to have supernatural empathy and help us to love like you do. I pray for every family, I pray for every person here um, that has gone through the pain of somebody committing suicide. I ask God that you would bring healing to those situations. I ask God that for those that have been told wrong things about what you think on the subject, those that have made perhaps thick black lines and absolutes where they don't belong, uh, that has caused people to stray away from you or to back away from you, God, I ask that uh, that you would bring truth and healing to those situations. And um, I just ask, Lord God, that uh, you would move by your mighty hand in the lives of every person that has been touched by the pain of someone taking their own life. And God, every single person that's here, anybody here that has either secretly or openly been struggling with thoughts of, of life not being worth it, that have despaired of their very life or have, have had thoughts of suicide cross their mind, God, May it not be some legalistic fear of hell that stops them uh, from going through with that, but may it be an, an incredible belief and a joy-filled understanding of your love for them that causes them not to do that, that gives them hope to carry on, to push forward, to engage in the mission that you've given us for your glory and for their good. Thank you for hearing our prayers. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.